0: Good morning, Journey. Man, wasn't Hannah awesome? I mean, like, wasn't that unbelievable? I don't, she probably went back to youth group. So I was at the hospital the day that Hannah was born because her dad is Pastor Ryan, for those of you who don't know that, Um, and Hannah and Christian, my oldest, are just a few months apart and literally, I mean, every day of their life for, except for about nine months, Ryan and I have worked together. So uh, we've just watched her grow up. And Ryan and Heather, I don't think you guys are in this service, but she's 13, so uh, in nine or 10 years, we'll hire her and she can take Daniel's job and and lead all our worship. She's just, um, she is awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, We're so glad that you're here today. You know, in March of 2014, um, the Toyota car company settled one of the largest lawsuits in the history um, of the automobile industry. $1.2 billion paid out to hundreds of people who, over the course of a decade, had experienced what what was called in the car industry "sticky accelerators," uh, basically cars that would get to a point of acceleration where where something would catch, um, and and the car the engine would literally just floor it, and cars would fly out of control through intersections, off-roads, and hundreds of cases had been reported where people said I pulled up to an intersection and I couldn't stop. My car started speeding up. And for years, Toyota had denied it and say, no, you just, you stepped on the wrong pedal and you just weren't paying attention and maybe you were asleep at the wheel. Um, And then a few years ago, a state highway patrolman in the name of, in the state of California by the name of Mark Saylor was driving his car when it happened. Now, because he had been trained in high-speed driving, He was able, while his car accelerated well past 120 miles an hour, to call 911 and keep the car under control and talk to the 911 operator while he's hurtling down a highway in Los Angeles, telling her, I'm driving this car. It won't stop. It just keeps accelerating. And for two or three minutes, he explained to the 911 operator exactly what was happening before he ran out of highway. And he and his wife and his 13-year-old daughter and his brother who were in the car um, were killed. And after that case, with proof that these cars sped up on their own and had no way to slow down, Toyota settled a $1.2 billion lawsuit to say, we're sorry for putting you in a situation, a driving situation that was uncontrollable. As we get into this series this month at our church, we're in a series called Overwhelmed. A lot of people are living life right now. Feeling as if their life is hurtling down the highway at speeds that are uncomfortable They feel like their life is moving at a speed that's maybe uncontrollable They feel like that that this week this month the rest of this year is going to move at a pace That's just simply overwhelming and we really don't have a strategy to slow down. We we don't know how to stop before our life totally gets out of control and as we look into scripture, that's not the type of life that God wants us to lead. He doesn't want us to live a life that feels uncomfortable, uncontrollable, overwhelming. He doesn't want us to live a life that feels like it's totally out of control. Instead, according to what we read last week, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. God's goal for us is to live a life that's enjoyable. God's goal for us is to live a life that, uh, that is satisfying. God's goal for us is to live a life that is kind of anything but Overwhelming. And in Ecclesiastes 3, if you don't have your Bible or ushers, have some. They're going to go down the aisles. And if you want a Bible, if you don't have one but you want one or you need to use one this morning, just wave at them. They'll give it to you. Solomon tells us the life that God wants us to live. But it's not the life that a lot of us are living. In 1965, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones really became famous in the United States because they released a song called I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And that's kind of the life that so many people are living today in, in the most blessed country and the wealthiest country in the world. We live a life where we just don't feel satisfied with our life and we're trying to figure out how to tap the brakes a little bit, but nothing seems to be able to slow us down. But here's the life Solomon said that God wants us to have, Ecclesiastes 3 verses 11 through 13. It says, God has made everything beautiful in its time." And he's also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. So God's gift to you is for you and I to be able to live a life with our families and before God and for eternity that's enjoyable, that's happy, That's satisfying, that's impactful. But Solomon throughout Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2 and getting into Ecclesiastes 4 through 12 said, there's a lot of things that get in the way of, of what would be Christian priorities. God's God's goal for our lives. And we said last week that those are seven things. When we look at Ecclesiastes 3, 11 through 13, and then we kind of navigate through the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, we, we do an overview of Proverbs. Bible says that Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs. Here's what we find is important for Christian people, their relationship with God, their relationship with their spouse, their relationship and responsibilities to their children, their responsibilities at work and at home, relationships that you have with strong friends, your health your hobbies, your enjoyment. As we look at that list of seven, as we read Ecclesiastes 3, as we kind of put a cap on what Solomon says God's desire for our life is, there aren't very many people who look at that list and say, those, those aren't my priorities. I don't care about those things. You would, you would be a poor Christian husband, father, friend, um, human being if you looked at that list and said, I don't care about those things. But many of us, have those as priorities, but not realities. If we looked at that list, we would say, yes, those things are important to me. But if you looked at last week or you looked at last month, you would say those, but those are not the things that take up massive amounts of my time. And those are not the things that I'm the most focused on. They're important to me. They're my priorities, but they're not my realities. Why? Because the activities of my life keep me too busy. And we said last week, when our lives are overwhelmed by activities rather than priorities, joy and balance just go away and you just... Man, you find yourself running from one activity to another. You find yourself hurtling down the road at a pace of life where you're calling 911 and saying, I don't, I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to stop. And not only do we not stop, we speed up. Instead of trying to pump the brakes, we just floor the gas pedal. I've got so much going on that I feel overwhelmed. So maybe I'll add this thing and it will give me a little more joy. Or maybe I'll add this thing and that will give me a little more satisfaction. Maybe, and we go from 100 to 150 trying, trying to find out how to move forward instead of trying to figure out how to slow down. And Solomon says, this is the life that God wants you to have. But unfortunately, the busyness of our lives can keep us from the most important thing in our lives if we don't live purposefully. So the goal of this series, and there are several, but one of the goals of this series is to teach everyone in here just to pump the brakes a little bit and just have some conversations about what's important in life, about what's priorities in life, and to try to Try to figure out how to live purposefully towards those priorities. Now, the next three weeks, I'm going to teach you three biblical routines that I believe God set in place that we have violated that provide time for us to accomplish God's goals for our lives if we will learn these things and if we will embrace these things. And if you haven't already... those sermon notes out and ready because I'm going to refer back to this list of priorities often. But when we look at these seven things, most of us are going to look at these seven things and say, my life does not have time for those, Christian. As it is right now, your life might not have time for those. But I believe when we look at scripture that God set three specific things in place, three routines that allow us to pursue these things in life and achieve these things in life if we'll just live life the way God intended for us. And those three things are evenings, Sabbaths, and feast weeks. Evenings allow us to depart daily. God could have just created the sun and said, there's going to be sunlight 24 hours a day, and I just want you to, I just want you to work all day long. That's the way God could have designed our world. But God said, I'm, I'm going to insert an evening And an evening is going to allow you to depart from everything that you would do during daylight hours. God provided for us a Sabbath. He, God set in place a time for us to withdraw weekly from the busyness of life so we could focus on the priorities of life. And then one of my favorite studies in all the Old Testament is a study of feast weeks, this thought of abandoning annually with your family, getting away with your family. A Jewish family had to do it three times to get away from everything in your life and just focus on your family and your faith. I believe God set these in place to allow us to pursue the priorities of our life. And I believe if we can embrace this concept of evenings and Sabbaths and feast weeks, departing daily, withdrawing weekly, abandoning annually, we can learn to succeed in what God has called us to do. I believe if we can learn to embrace these concepts, we can move from a life that's overwhelming to a life that's overflowing with joy and balance. I believe we can not only begin to slow the car down, I believe we can drive the car at our pace, at our time, when we want to. I believe we can take control back and not live a life that's overwhelmed but live a life that has some joy and balance. But we're going to have to learn. It's why we had that song. We're going to have to learn as people to push the busyness of life every now and then to tomorrow. We've got to embrace this thought of tomorrow. I I can do this tomorrow. Because if we can push busyness to tomorrow, we can embrace priorities today. And if we'll do that just a little bit at a time, we're going to see our life slowly begin to change. And I think three things can help us with that that I want to show you. Number one, Some biblical concepts I've learned that are pretty simple, but transformational if you put them into place. We've got to learn to flip our day around. We have to learn just from a mental perspective and from a scheduling perspective, we've got to learn to flip our day around. And I've actually got like a little pop quiz for you on your sermon notes that I'm going to ask you to just fill out, but I'm going to ask you to do it very, very quickly because it'll be awkward if I give you like a minute and I'm just standing up here looking at you. So if I were to ask you, or if I were to ask a large group of people, um, write down the first thing you do every day. What's the very first thing you do every day? What's the very first meal you eat every day? What's the very first long-term activity that you do every day? I mean, just start tomorrow. What's the very first thing you're going to do on Monday? First meal you're going to eat. First long-term, first thing you're going to do that's more than three hours. What, what are the first things that you're going to do every day? I believe the answers to that list, if we took a survey, collected them, would look something like this. I believe most people would say the first thing they do every day is wake up. Maybe you said brush your teeth, drink a cup of coffee, but you'd have to wake up first. We'd say the first thing i do every day is wake up. First meal I eat every day is breakfast. Some of you are not breakfast people, but it is the first meal of our culture in the day. And you would say the first long-term activity I do every day is, is go to work. You say first thing I do every day, I get out of bed, get my coffee, get my breakfast, get, get whatever it is that's gonna get me going, and then I go to work. These, these, are, these have become the priorities of my life schedule. Let me ask you a question. What if our days started in the evening Instead of in the morning, would that, change, would, that, would that change anything with us and how we're trying to pursue the priorities God has given us? Because I had this starting reality a few years ago, startling reality a few years ago in Israel. Our church goes to Israel about every year. We have some ministries that we work with and serve with over there. We'll be over there um, with 30 people this year and two separate trips that we're going to take. But the very first time I went over there, We landed on Thursday evening, went to the hotel, went to bed. Friday was our first day of sightseeing. And we had to get from Tel Aviv, which is the largest city in Israel, up to Haifa, which is the third largest city of Israel, during the course of this Friday. And, you know, we got up and saw some sights. And we went to where David killed Goliath and saw some more sights. And we went to Caesarea where Paul was in prison. And um, Herod died and saw some more sights. And as we were going into Haifa Friday evening, we got into Haifa and it looked like a ghost town. I mean, literally, everything was closed. All, all that was in, like, everything was dark. All the lights were off. We were almost out of gas. No gas stations were open. We hadn't eaten dinner. There were no restaurants open. I mean, the only thing that was there, Jeff was there, Zurb was there, Robbie was there, maybe some. the only thing that was in Haifa were cats. There were just, like, cats everywhere. But it looked like an aban- It looked like nuclear war had happened. The, the city was, was abandoned. And I looked at the guy we were with who was taking us to Israel and I said, like, what, like where are we going to get gas and what are we going to eat and where are we going to stay and like, what is going on? Where is everyone? And he said, oh, everything is closed for the Sabbath. And I said, the Sabbath is Saturday and like the Sabbath is tomorrow. He said, no, the, in Israel, the day starts in the evening. The Sabbath, is, the Sabbath starts Friday night in our vernacular because in Jewish culture, the day starts in the evening, not the morning said, that's crazy. So, have you ever read Genesis one, Creation Week? I said yes. So, have you ever paid attention to what it says? Said, apparently not. Go to Genesis one in your Bible if you have, if you have Genesis one. Genesis one. It'd be like one of the very first pages in your Bible. Because this concept flipped me out, and it has changed the way I see life and the way I pursue priorities. So, God created over the course of six days. He rested on the seventh. And in Genesis 1:5, 19 1, 113, 119, 123, 131, the days are described. And listen to how they're described. So they're not described the way we live our life. Genesis 1:5, God called the light day, the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Look at 1.8. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Look at verse 13. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Look at verse 19. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. Look at verse 23. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. Look at verse 31. God saw that all he had made, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. The Jewish day starts in the evening, not in the morning. You say, big deal. It is a big deal. When it comes to the routine of life, it is a big deal. Because our routine of life looks like this. Every day starts with get up, get breakfast, get out the door. That's not the way life was supposed to be started. That's not the way days were supposed to be started. God's routine for life looks like this. First thing you do every day, stop working. First priority of the day, stop working. First meal you eat every day, dinner with your family. It becomes the first priority of every day of your life. First long-term activity you partake in every day, sleep. That is awesome. It's like, like, does God know me or what? It's like, I can dig that schedule. You see, when you look at the priorities of the Christian life through the lens of our schedule, the reason we don't have time for the things God says are important is because we get up and get going so fast that it's impossible to ever fit anything else in. But if we start on God's schedule... Getting up and going to work is actually the fourth thing you do every day. Because when you start in the evening, you start by shutting down. You then start by spending time with family. You then start by resting and being able to spend time with God. And then after you've done all the really important things, you get up and go to work. We have put work number one because it's just the way our culture functions for most who have a traditional schedule. And when I even talk to you about adding these other things in your life, you're saying, there's no time for that. Not the way we live now. Not with our routine. But we have to change our routine. You see, number two, the mentality of God's routine over our current routine, it allows you to prioritize time for purpose living. You see, if you'll start where God starts, and the whole concept of this message is so simple, I'm just trying to teach you, to give yourself permission to depart daily just for a little bit. I'm trying to teach you to, this week, lean into your evenings like you never have. Most people, I've heard pastors say, man, Jesus got up while it was still dark. And, and, and they say, man, like, if you're not done reading your Bible before the sun comes up, you don't love God. And I'm like, well, then I'm out because that's, that's not the routine of, of my life. I can stay up late, but that's hard. It's not always the way it has to happen. When we look at maybe stealing some evening time for our relationship with God, our relationship with our spouse, our relationship and responsibilities to our children, our responsibilities at work and home, spending time with friends, spending time focusing on our health, having some fun doing our hobbies and enjoyment. If we look at God's schedule for our life, it's like there's time for that. God purposefully told us to depart from our regular schedule every day so we could pursue the schedule That he wants us to have If we try to cram these things into our routine it's probably not going to happen It's just going to overwhelm our schedules more than they are Because the reality is we can't begin to break old routines until we can slowly begin to establish new routines Like we can't just cram extra stuff into our daily lives because our daily lives are already kind of overflowing It's why jesus said in mark chapter 22. No one pours new wine into old wine skins Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins. So some of you are saying, Christian, how am I gonna fit all of this stuff into my already busy life? You're you're gonna have to change your already busy life. It actually won't fit. If you just try to add these things to your current life, your life is gonna explode. You can't add. You've gotta, gotta change. You literally have to have some hard conversations and say, how do we change this a little bit? And I believe you should start with the evening. Now, any Leader parent adult in here who's burned out needs to read this book This was the most life-changing book that i've ever read as an overwhelmed Person it's called leading on empty by wayne cordero And it's a book that just talks about people who live on the fumes of life for years and years and years And they eventually just burn out Yet they've got important things to do. So they're they're trying to live their life on an empty tank emotionally And one of the key concepts in this book is you have to learn to use your evenings for things that are important. Cordero says that if you start your day today, if every day you start today, there's never enough time in today to get things done. But if you will realize tomorrow, there are always enough tomorrows to get everything done. There's never enough of today, but there are always enough tomorrows to get things done. And he talks about from family time to sleep time to rest time. He talks about using your evenings, changing your routine so that you can pursue the life God wants you to spend. So let me ask you a question. Let me, let me just ask you to give one hour to this routine this week. What if you spent one hour each evening this week accomplishing one of God's priority goals for you? Let's see what that would look like. What if you spent just one hour? I'm not saying an hour every night for God, but I'm saying what if one day this week you said, I'm going to give God one hour? Would that be the first hour you've spent with God in weeks, months, years? Like what if you said Wednesday, I'm going to give God an hour, just one hour? What if you said on Tuesday, I'm going to give my kids one hour? I'm only going to give them one hour this week, but I'm going to give one hour in one evening. When's the last time you took your kids for ice cream and just spent an hour with them and no one was allowed to bring their phones and you just talked to them? Just one hour, one week. What if you said, I'm going to take a walk or jump on the treadmill or go to the gym for one hour this week? Would it be the first hour you spent in the gym in weeks, months, years? See, if we could just begin in bite-sized pieces to carve an hour, out of seven hours this week, already our lives would improve. What if you said, I'm gonna call up my best friend who I haven't had time with and I'm gonna spend one hour with one of my best friends this week. We're gonna grab, um, we head to Buffalo Wild Wings. We're gonna watch a game on TV. We're gonna catch up at Starbucks. I'm gonna give one hour. See, if you would carve seven hours out of your evening and commit them just one at a time to these priorities, I think your life would begin to radically change. By using your evenings to accomplish God's priorities for your life, something has to change. Is why Jesus said, or Paul said in Ephesians five sixteen, you have to learn to redeem the time. You have to buy it. You have to purchase the time that you have to live. It's so valuable because the days are evil. So there's your challenge for this week. Spend one hour every day this week just accomplishing one of these things. Just set an alarm clock on your phone and give it an hour. Give God one hour this week in your evening. Give your kids one hour. Give your spouse one hour, give a friend one hour, give a hobby one hour, take a pitching wedge into your backyard, hit golf balls for an hour or whatever you do that's fun. Listen, give yourself an hour every evening this week and see if life doesn't begin the burdens of life to just begin to slip away a little bit. And then finally, I'm going to give you some advice that was given to me while leading in Israel. You'll notice when that day is over. You know, as a father and as a husband and as a leader, I used to never notice when it was dark outside. But since this concept, notice the first star came, I'll be sitting in my office, I'll be pounding away at my laptop and I'll look outside and see it's dark. And somehow that darkness says to me, this day's over, stop. This day is over, stop. Now I'm not saying that, hey, when it's dark, quit working. But I'm saying if we can get this concept down the the stars mean the day is over and the next day is beginning, we can begin to transition in our minds. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge everyone in here to create for yourself a hard stop every day where work and work correspondence is finished. Because we've got this little evil device in our world now called a cell phone that, that doesn't do this for us the way it used to be done. I mean, 25 years ago, no one left the office and took their office phone and their typewriter or their big computer and their copy machine and their fax machine and all their, you know, their filing cabinet. They didn't load it all up, take it home, and then reset it up in the living room beside them so that while they were having dinner, if anything came through, they could go and respond to it. But man, I see families sitting in restaurants having dinner, and I eat eat dinner with families in homes, and like their cell phones right there. They literally have brought their work to the dinner table with them. And They take their work to their kids' sports games with them. Could you have imagined? Think of those of you who grew up with, you know, going on road trips with dad in a conversion van. Can you imagine dad setting up a mobile command unit in the back with all his stuff, so that if he got a phone call on the way to the beach, he can make sure and take it and send an email and check all this stuff. We never separate from our work if we're carrying our phone and it is a work phone. Remember when people used to have a home phone? How many of you don't have a home phone anymore? Yeah, well, cheap. We don't, I, I don't either. It's like, I'm not gonna pay that money. But there's kind of a cultural respect where it's like, hey, it's six or seven o'clock. I'm not gonna call them at home. But well, people will call your cell phone like night and day, shoot you a text message. So there's never a separation. So I wanna challenge you. And I, I can't tell you what time it is for you but sometime after that first star comes out and it gets started, just go put the phone away for a few hours. Plug it in in a room that you and your family won't be in and shut the door. Put it in a drawer, turn it off, only to be turned on the next day. But here's the reality. If we can learn to embrace the mentality that the sun will come up tomorrow and then I can go back to work, then we'll be okay shutting the thing off and thinking, I'll, you know, I'll see it 5 or 6 a.m. You can even talk to your phone, tell it goodbye. Hey, hey, uh, you know, it'll talk back to you these days. See you tomorrow, i got to go be with the family now. And then, you know, go be with your family. Because if you ever hope to accomplish the other six priorities, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, because the reality is the ones we're missing are the most important six. But if we ever hope to accomplish the other six priorities, life outside of work, you have to stop working from time to time. I love how Solomon, in two verses, he confronts laziness and people who are working too much in Ecclesiastes 4, 5, and 6. He said, fools fold their hands and they ruin themselves. Some people don't do anything. But he said, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. You see, some of you don't have time to ever embrace your family, embrace your friends, embrace your health, embrace your hobbies, because your hands are full. It's where we get that saying, your hands are full. Solomon says, one handful of work is good. That gives you another hand to do the other things you need to do in life. But if your life is consumed with chasing and holding on to work and stuff, he said, you, you, you're as backwards as a person who just won't even get up and go to work. One handful's good. Use the other hand to manage and hold on to your family. If you want to live a life that's overwhelmed, ignore, ignore these things. Ignore God and you'll be overwhelmed real quick. Ignore your spouse and eventually you'll be divorced. Ignore your children, and you'll find your children wanting to spend more time with other people's parents than at home. Ignore your friends, and you'll be very lonely, and you won't have any. Ignore your health, and you'll always feel bad physically. Ignore your hobbies, and you'll live a life that you never laugh or have fun in. And it's funny, so many of us say, Christian, I'm totally overwhelmed, and we look at that list, and we say, I just don't have time for that. I'm saying we have to learn how to embrace our evenings have to learn how to embrace our Sabbaths. We'll talk about that next week. We have to learn how to embrace our feast weeks, how to get away yearly, to focus on our family and our spiritual health. And if we do these things, we can't accomplish this stuff. Sadly, just the guilt over knowing we're inadequate in these six areas. I mean, the guilt that people have in coming to church and saying, you know, I don't have time for God this week. It makes them so guilty that it's more overwhelming. People who realize I'm not gonna have time this week for my spouse, they, they feel more overwhelmed just hearing the truth. So what happens? We have to change. If your life, let me say this to you very clearly. If your life doesn't have adequate time for the other six priorities, then you're not living your life according to God's plan. Something has to change. It may just be a really busy season in, that you're in. But listen, when phases of life become patterns of life and they don't change, you gotta call time out and you gotta do something. I'm gonna read a verse to you that's not on your sermon notes because I didn't see it this week till Wednesday. I was laying in bed on Wednesday. I was doing my daily Bible reading and I read a verse in Nehemiah that I don't remember ever reading before, even though I've read my Bible a bunch. And when I read this verse, I thought, it just, when I read this verse with my heart focused on this message, I thought, man, there it is right there. Nehemiah building the wall of Israel said this, after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Fight for your sons and daughters. Fight for your wives and for your homes. Leave that verse on the screen for a minute. Go back one. Nehemiah would tell those of you today who are listening to this message and agree with everything that I say, but you don't know how you're going to change. he say, stand up and fight. Figure it out. Tape up the wrist, strap on the gloves, and fight for your families. Fight for your marriages. Fight for your kids. Don't resign yourself to a life that's overwhelmed. Fight for your family. You know, I was so blessed to be raised by possibly the greatest dad on planet Earth. My dad is my best friend. He was my best man in my wedding, my dad was my principal growing up, my athletic director, my football coach at a very small school. And maybe you've had somebody like my dad in your life that really believed in you, but my dad spoke life into me. Maybe you had a parent or a grandparent or an uncle and aunt or a coach or a teacher that came along beside you and like said, you can do anything. But my, my dad did that for me. My mom you know, spoke life into me as well. My mom always told me I had a good heart which, you know, I look back now and I'm, I, you know, I, maybe she thought I was ugly because, I, you know, she's always like, you have such a good heart. Like we take our Easter picture and she my got two sisters older. And she's like, girls, you look so pretty. And Christian, you got such a good heart. And I look back now and I'm like, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what it was meant by, but my dad would always say, it's going to sound weird, but my dad would always say, say, Christian, God made you a Newsome. And he said a lot of things to me, but as my coach, kind of his, his coach thought in my life, as he said, God, um, God blessed you to throw things. Now, here's what he meant by that. My dad was a pitcher in college. He played baseball through in the 90s. His little brother um, was a pitcher in college through in the 90s. My cousin, who's his son, played Division I baseball through like 94. And my dad would always just tell me, you're a Newsom, you can throw. There's something in your arm that can throw. You're a Newsom, you can throw. He's, I mean, like from a very young age, he would tell me, God made you to throw. Um, but by the time I was in kindergarten, dad wasn't a baseball coach anymore. He was a football coach. So I was raised like every day by 60 babysitters that were 9th through 12th grade football players, like every day. And football became, I mean, the obsession of my life. When I got into 8th grade, my dad gave me this bag um, full of footballs. And I literally carried it around every day of my life. New footballs, same bag. I bet this bag is 24, 25 years old. Um, And my life became football. I mean, every moment of my life was football. I slept with a football from seventh grade through senior. Not a stuffed one, a real one, like this. Um, every day of my life, I slept with a football. Like, I love the smell of a football, like a new football. If they made football-smelling football perfume and my wife wore it, like, we'd have to put the kids to bed early, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like, that's a, that's a romantic thought in, in my life, you know, for, for my wife to smell like, like a football. Um, I loved football, and my dad told me that I was created to throw a football, and I and I would throw it well. So I mean, every day, hours and hours and hours. This never, this bag never left my car. Um, if I went and stayed all night with a friend, I would I would take it with me. It went every sport that I played. It would go to practices before practice and after. If I had, if I ever had a spare moment, all I wanted to do was throw football. And, and I got pretty good at it, whether I was blessed genetically or my dad just tricked me into practicing a lot. By the time I was in sixth grade, I could throw a football about 50 yards. By the time I was in college, I could throw it 70. I was blessed to have my college paid for by throwing this little thing around. I mean, I love the game of football. And, and even now today, like, have you ever seen a dog when someone's throwing a ball? And they're, you know, they like, what like, if I'm anywhere and there's a football thrown around, like, it, it grabs my attention. And I speak at a lot of youth camps um, this summer. I'll speak at one in Florida, one in Georgia, one in Texas. Um, and every time I'm there, they have some activities, and the kids are always challenging me um, to either come help them on their football team or you know to come to come see if they can outthrow me. And you know I'm I'm old, but I'm not dead, so I usually you know take the chance. All right, until the last few years, and I just I don't have it like I used to have it anymore, unfortunately. But we were at youth camp a couple years ago with our kids. And they'd set up this week-long competition that was like everything from the mile run to the football toss, to weightlifting, to pushups, to CrossFit stuff. And the kids kept, kept asking me, are you gonna participate in the football throw? I said, man, I haven't thrown a football in years. Probably not. They said, oh, come on, come on, come on, you have to. I said, okay, I'll, I'll throw on the last day, but I told the guy running the competition, you have to tell me what the furthest throw is. because if I can't beat it, I'm not gonna do it. But you know, if it's around, if it's around 50, I'll, I'll be all right. So I went there the last day, last throw, and they had snuck a college baseball player in who threw at 60. And the guy told me the long throw is 60. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I can do it. But there was a big crowd and my ego got the best of me. I said, all right, give me a ball." So I took a few warm-up throws and I threw three throws and, and I didn't get it. I felt like the last two throws were exactly a half yard short, 59 and a half yards. And I just said, I can't do it. He wins. And as I was walking away, Robbie McCord, one of our elders, was there. And literally, as I was walking away, he said, you hurt your arm, didn't you? And I said, I think that I did. I hurt my arm so bad. Like, the next morning, I had to preach left-handed. Like, I, l- I literally couldn't even raise my arm. I was like, God loves you. And, you know, and I like, that's how I pointed. Like, my arm hurt so bad. So I go to the doctor when I get home, and I said, man, what, what did I do? I can't lift my arm. What did I do? And he said, well, tell me what happened. So I told him what happened. He started laughing. Um, and he said, son, you don't, uh, you don't have any brakes left. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, you don't have any brakes left. He said, you got two types of muscles in your body. He said, You've got motor muscles that get things moving forward, and then you've got brakes that, that stop things. And he said, Your arm, he said, you, You've thrown enough football that your arm is going to work, it's going to move forward the rest of your life. So, how many, how many pass attempts do you have, like in games, actual game pass attempts? I said, Probably 1,000 between high school and college. He said, Okay. So, I guarantee somebody like you has thrown a ball 500 times in practice every time that he's thrown the game. So, you've thrown a football over a half a million times. So, your arm, you forever we'll be able to throw a football. He said, you could cock your arm in a coffin, put a ball in it, and chances are possibly at some point you could throw the ball. I thought that'd be a great trick if if I could figure out how to make that happen. Um, But he said, you're always going to be able to throw. He said, but old men always hurt the brakes. And he said, when your motor starts getting some forward, he said, there are muscles in the back of your shoulder that stop your arm from flying off your torso. And He said, old men always hurt the brakes. That's why old men hurt their backs, not their abs. Their abs get things moving forward and then their back can't keep up. It's why old men hurt their Achilles, not their calves. Their calves start pumping and their Achilles can't stop it anymore. It's why old people hurt their hamstrings, not their quads. He said, the older you get, once things in your life get moving forward in a fast direction, it's really hard to slow them down. And I thought this week about that physical statement spiritually. And I thought, how true is that for us? Those of us who sit here and we're so motivated... To have this be our life. But our life is already headed so fast in a certain direction that we just don't know how to slow down. I mean, we really want this, but we're so set in our ways, we just don't know how to slow it down. And Nehemiah would say, if God's communicating with your heart and telling you this is where you're supposed to be, but it's not where you are yet, And even though it's going to be really hard, you're going to have to stop and figure some things out, Nehemiah would say, fight for your families, fight for your marriages, fight for your kids, tape up the wrist, put on the gloves, stick in the mouthpiece and fight because it's worth fighting to live this life, a life surrounded by and close to God, your spouse, children, friends, health, hobbies, and work. But these things first and these things most the goal that I have as a pastor Is that the people in our church the families in our church The the marriages in our church the parents in our church would be some of the strongest in our community Not Because we're great people But because we serve a great god we figure out how he says to live life. We try to do that And the result is it works So I want to challenge you You want to change your life fight Start by taking back a little of your evenings See if this week isn't one of the best you've had yet this year. Let's pray together.